Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Ashley Quinlan, Senior Road Technical Editor, and I'm joined by fellow Senior Road Technical Editor, Warren Rossiter. Hi, Ash. How are you going? I'm very well, thanks. Good stuff, good stuff. So this is another in our series of frame tech podcasts, and we are going to be talking about aluminium today, um, otherwise known as alloy a lot of the time, but we're talking about aluminium and uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to introducing our special guest. But just before I do that, Warren, what have you been up to recently? I've uh, actually just got back from um, riding a new bike out in Tenerife, which is a, a sort of new do-anything all-road bike. So I've mixed my time up from you know some pretty spectacular road rides and some incredible gravel riding on the kind of black volcanic surfaces high up in the mountains in, in Tenerife, which was fantastic to be honest and quite nice on a, on a no- november late november yeah exactly yeah on a late november where at home gravel is sludge um yes. it's good to see what dust is again yeah yeah just mud unfortunately <laughs> okay so um look, let's let's introduce our special guest our special guest today is well a tech design guru from specialized uh to talk to us about aluminium technology today uh chris delugio chris Hello, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Excellent, excellent. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah, no worries at all. So, Chris, you're joining us from, uh, I believe, Morgan Hill in California over in, over in America. Am I correct in saying that from Specialized HQ or are you nearby at least? Yep, I'm in the office today. 
Yep. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So, um, yeah, so we're going to talk about aluminium today, and I guess we should just well, dive straight in, I suppose. I mean, we should, we should probably start from the top by, by asking, you know, we probably all recognize the the uh the material of aluminium um or in america I, you guys call it aluminum uh and i'm going to assume they're exactly the same thing i'm pretty sure they are uh but you know but we recognize that material from so many areas of our lives um but you know when did aluminium to your to your knowledge when did aluminium first start to appear on on road bikes uh, and 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 bikes in general i guess well, it was in the early 80s, I believe, and I think it was Klein was the first to do it. And I think, yeah, that was very early 80s. And I started my career at Cannondale. Um, and remember, Cannondale started with aluminum bikes. And when I got there, they, we were just barely starting to make frames, not in production yet. So I actually helped set up the manufacturing for those aluminum bikes. So I was right out of school and, you know, just learning on the job and helping helping create aluminum bikes in mass production. So Klein hadn't done it in mass production yet. So we were we were on the cutting edge at the time. And that's kind of the, um, I guess, the aluminum we'll remember when it got sort of lightweight, super oversized, um, uh, and, you know, that kind of what we all consider to be that classic aluminum road bike profile. I mean, because you had guys over in Europe like Vitus and and Allen doing a kind of bonded aluminum frames in the 70s, although they didn't really show the same sort of characteristics as as the aluminum bikes that we're talking about, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. They were, uh, and yeah, I kind of separate the bonded from the welded because the bonded were kind of, um, they're still trying, right? They're using pipe not tubing, right? Really thick wall and cast lugs and bonded together and no one really knew how to bond. So the bonds came undone and there was a, yeah, there was a lot of learning and they weren't really that much better than the steel bikes, although they were, they were different. They had an appeal. Hmm. Okay. So um, going back to those kind of early days at, at Cannondale, I mean, yeah, we had Klein, we had um, quite a few other kind of guys messing about with aluminium back then. I'm thinking, of, you know, especially in like the mountain bike space, when you're thinking of guys like Mountain Cycle, we were effectively like pressing aluminium sheets and then, you know, seam welding them, which is something that, you know, Specialized sort of did a little bit with the original FSRs. And, you know, so, but actually bringing that, that revolutionary tubing, I mean, and you were there at that kind of genesis point, especially with Cannondale, who, let's face it, became the biggest aluminium guys doing it. What was kind of that kind of genesis point for you, you know, that, that you could prove aluminium as a true worth as a material? Well, it was, it was in the DNA of, of Cannondale and how they were making their mark on cycling. And it was making um, the best product we could and choosing material, to, the aluminum material to do that. And um, that came down to really innovating and finding suppliers who could make budded um, drawn butted aluminum tubing, which was not common at the time. And then, um, and this is, I believe it's before mountain bikes. So it was a long time ago. Like, I think I started there in 84. Um, and so, yeah, right around that time. Um, but yeah, it was really figuring out how to manipulate the aluminum to the shape we were engineering, um, and not just using the basic tube out of a had up a mandrel and then because the way aluminum works is uh just like all materials you need to use the geometry and mate that with the material properties and since aluminum is very light 
and relatively stiff. I mean, it, they go together, right? Weight and stiffness kind of go together. Um, and so you really need to use the geometry to get the ride quality you want and then reduce the wall thickness as much as you can um, with the bigger tubes. At, at the time, they were huge tubes. Now they'd be considered small. Um, but then, yeah, you manipulate the tube wall thickness um, to be thicker at the welds. You had a little more um, user friendliness for the welder to make it a little easier um, for them. And then nice and thin in the middle where it just had to do the, the work of the tube. And so so just just to back step maybe half half a step there i mean how how does how does one create an aluminium frame uh today um and i suppose we sh- we should compare that to how aluminium frames were created originally um so could you just take us through that a little bit chris wow maybe that's, start a, originally. that's a tough question <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> i like yeah. to challenge our guests you see that's yeah. that's my role here <laughs> okay um yeah, to basically you, the original tubes that were bonded together, I call them pipes because they, mm-hmm. they generally were really thick tubes. You know, you go to Home Depot and you get aluminum pipe. Yeah. Um, and then to make a proper aluminum um, welded or even bonded, you need a drawn seamless tube. And to get it to do what you want, um, you need to put butts on the ends, just like the steel tubing, you'd butt steel tubing. So you have a drawn, seamless, Mm -hmm. butted tube. And then because you generally don't want a round tube, you can uh, mechanically form the tube by um, putting it in dies and changing its shape. That generally won't change any circumferences, but you'll get a different shape. Um, You can um, swage it, which is putting it in um, like a cone-shaped set of dies that spin and you push the tube into it and you'll make a cone shape. So smaller on one end, bigger on the other. That makes the small end thicker, which, you know, you can use to your advantage um, by um, the starting wall thickness of that tube. And then you can also take that drawn butted tube that's swedged and then mechanically form that. And that's what you'd see in a chainstay perhaps. And then from there, you can take that tube and put it in a hydroforming and mechanically form it from the inside with pressure from hydraulic fluid. So you can make really crazy tube shapes, and all along the way, you're uh, you're mechanically hardening the, the material, and that has a, a drawback of you'll crack it. You know, the the one step too far and you'll crack it, and it's no good. So you have to anneal it in between, kind of. Um, take all the material and kind of put it back in soup condition um, and then get rid of all that hardness, put it all back in the same state. And then you can almost start over and re-manipulate it. So you can have a tube that you've um, mechanically formed seven or eight times. And then finally you take that tube and put it in, in your fixture and weld it. It's really cool. It sounds it. <laughs> so when, the, um, when we're, we're talking about you know that kind of early years of aluminium and you know obviously you you were there and you were at the forefront of it what from your opinion do you see as the the big benefit of using alloy or aluminium as opposed to to steel and chromoly derivatives etc i mean from your point of view what 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 advantage was being brought by aluminium um it was weight 
um, uh, and ride quality. Now, those a long time ago, we didn't really have a ride quality that we were shooting for, and that's what gave aluminum a really uh, not a good impression because we were building bikes the best we could, and that made them harsh. And so the people confused harshness with stiffness, and that still happens. Um, and then there's how bikes evolve and how we want them to ride is such a, um, it's a personal thing. So every designer um, and bike company has their own philosophy on how they want a bike to ride. Um, and that will lead you to choose a material based on how you want it to ride. And also your philosophy on material use um, will determine the shape of your bike. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but there's, there's a lot involved in first deciding what you want your bike to ride with. Um, also understanding it needs to pass all the testing. And those a long time ago, we didn't have all the testing we have now. Almost nothing we made back then would pass any tests we have now. And that's, that's true for all the steel bikes that we were, you know, had as our baselines way back then. They, none of the steel bikes passed our testing. They were too weak and they didn't, they didn't have any fatigue life. And we focused a lot on that because aluminum does have a very, um, not a very good fatigue life. So how do you get around um, a challenge like that then to make, you know, to make a bike that will, that will effectively will last? Engineering. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once, if you know the properties and you know the, the stresses and the loads and everything that's going through a frame, you can engineer it uh, to do what you want. And uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the engineering, you kind of do the best job you can and then you go into the real world where you have human welders, even robotic welders, that adds um, a bit of tolerance into your design. That's why you end up with a little heavier bike in production than you would want, right? Because, okay, we need to thicken it here because it cracks because of the welding and the, you know, the heat, heat soak makes the weld, um, you know, makes that stress a little bit higher, that kind of thing. So I guess that's a yeah. It's almost like leaves the door open to jump forward twenty plus years with um, obviously what you've done at Specialized with with Smart Weld. You know, it seems like you at Specialized and and I would say probably Cannondale are the only sort of two brands out there that still seem to push the envelope on on aluminium design and, and engineering. You know, and obviously with the Smart Weld um, concept that you came up with, was the main goal of Smart Weld being able to ensure more accuracy in that that frame building element of using aluminium yes exactly i couldn't have said it better that's the whole um the whole idea with the smart weld is to um take that variability away and put the engineering back in the engineer's hands um in the designer's hands and, and get the ride quality that you are targeting um and by moving the weld away from the high stress areas or the, the typical joint um, uh, configurations, then, um, then you can um, ha- move the, basically move the variable to a point to a spot that doesn't matter anymore. So how, how does it compare? So for someone who, like myself who d- doesn't quite understand smart weld or, or may, maybe looking at it doesn't doesn't quite work, know the differences, what are the differences between that and a standard sort of weld joint 
Um, and how, how do you process that, Chris? Okay, so in a nutshell, if you have a head tube and a down tube, the highest stress is at the weld, um, at the bottom of the head tube and down tube for typical riding. So you now have the highest stress and you have a tube with a thin wall, and a, uh, which is the down tube, a tube with a thick wall, which is the head tube, and a welder who, who knows how good a day that person's having, and they're going <laughs> to weld it. Right, and you can't determine when they're going to start and stop the weld. You don't know which direction their torch is pointing when they're welding. It's going to look great, but you don't know how good it really is. Now you're going to sell that bike to someone, and it's got to last forever, and not have a problem. So that's how it's that's how it's done before a smart weld. Now imagine you can um, manipulate that head tube and down tube to the point where you can take the weld and move it as far away from the high stress as possible and have anyone in the world weld that bike and it works the same every time, that's what smart weld is. Imagine the two variables of a super thin wall and a super thick wall. And the heat goes into the super thin wall so fast it melts the tube away before you even got the thick uh, tube hot. That's how difficult it is to weld thick and thin together um there's it's really really hard and people spend years and years um perfecting it and still it's not as good as it could be it's hard not to add a side of hot crispy hash browns to your favorite mcdonald's breakfast it's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home one of the things i've always wondered i mean obviously i've been around this for a long enough time when I remember every bike I owned with that was aluminium. I never ever quite got to the total understanding of the designation. So, you know, I'd heard it from lots of different sources, like, you know, the difference between 7075, 6061, you know, and all those other numbers, you know, from some people it was kind of the perception always used to be that 6061 was was the better material, but it tended to be on bikes that were made domestically in the States. Whereas if the an equivalent aluminium bike was coming out of Asia, it tended to be seventy seventy five. Are there actually structural reasons for choosing one material over, or is it more about geography and availability of the material? No, there's a a significant difference between them, and um, so sixty sixty one is a weldable alloy, and it's about the best. Any sixty, any material that starts with a sixty is a weldable material. It's, that's part of the designation. Um, and there's 6061, 60, and you know, there's all kinds of numbers that have that designation. Those are weldable and heat treatable. So when you weld the two materials together, you have a designated filler material, you weld them together, they're super soft, you could bend them, manipulate them, then you heat treat them, and then when they're done heat treating, they're just as good as they were when they were the material before welding. Um, then you have, and those are that's medium strength um, materials, I would call them. Um, and uh, so one thing to be clear, all aluminum has the same stiffness and all aluminum has the same weight. We're talking, you know, unless you pull out a tenth of a gram scale, they all, have, they all share those two things. Now where they differ is the weldability and um, the strength and the 
those are very opposite of each other. So 70-75 is about twice as strong as 60-61, roughly speaking. Um, and then there's 20-24, which is kind of right in between the 70-75 and 60-61. 20-24, 70-75 are but you can't weld them. They're, they're, like I said, the, the stiffnesses are all the same. So depending on what you're gonna use them for, 7075 is a perfectly, is a really good forged aluminum that you're gonna, you know, forge machine um, and anodize or paint or something, and then just use as is. It's great for that, because it's really strong. Um, and it's easy to machine, but you can't weld it. You can bond it, but then all the, there's so, so many drawbacks with bonding. Um, but if you have an application, application that bonding is preferred over welding, then you choose that material, 7075. So I'm sure that engineers listening to this podcast now, and I bet there'll be a few, they'll roll their eyes at me, but a higher number isn't always best for depending on what you want to do, want to do with it, right? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> it may be stronger. It may be stiffer. You know, 70-75 may be stronger and stiffer, and that may be a common one that we see versus 60-61, 60-65 off the top of my head. And yes, 20-24, I hadn't even thought of myself. But yeah, I've seen that before. And um, guess, one, one correction, uh, yes. it's, not, it's not stiffer. It is stronger, stronger. but it's not stiffer. Right, there we go. same stiffness. Yeah, there we go. There we go. You see, it's, it, it's more complex than it, than it seems on, it on the face of it, right? It is because we, we tend to put those things together, stronger yes. and stiffer. But they're, if it's stronger, it might be less stiff. Because it's stronger, you can make it thinner, right? And because it's thinner, you can make it bigger to get your stiffness back. So it's this whole, it's this, it, it's, it really is a super fun game of engineering to, you know, figure out where you, what material to use where and how thick and how thin. It's super fun. Yeah. So, so just a sub question quickly. If if ever I were to see sixty six, well, this could be incorrect technically speaking, but sixty sixty one dash t six or dash t five, you sometimes see t numbers after these designations of of of, of aluminium. Um, what what did the, what did the t numbers signify? Just just so someone could know. That is the hardness, okay. and the the t is the hardness, and the the six is the designation of how they got that hardness. Right. So uh, don't don't get them confused. That confused with stiffness or hardness, stiffness and uh, and well rigidity and. There's a lot of ness. There's a lot of ness. Yeah, the T number does go with the hardness and the ductility and the strength. Okay. So that's an important and it's an important um, factor because if you have an aluminum bike that's welded with a heat treatable material and you don't heat treat it. It'll only get so hard. You'll spend a month or two months getting to its ultimate hardness, and that's not as hard as it could be if you use the material the way it was supposed to be used, which is um, uh, artificially, uh, basically heat treating it with an oven. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, you know, I, I think we've spoken about before over the many years that we've met up on various launches and the things you've been involved with. But I, I always wondered whether, um, you know, from an engineer's perspective like you, do you think that aluminium got a sort of short shrift um, with the advent of carbon? Carbon just sort of came in and completely took over. You know, if you had the same, and obviously you're completely involved in the composites world now, do you think if you stayed 
with aluminium and kept developing at the rate it was in those early years, do you think we'd, we would arrive at, at something today that would be pretty spectacular, I guess? That's a really good question. It would be difficult to, to know that, but I don't doubt it because bikes always get better and that's our job to make them better. We, you know, the cycling industry can't sit still. And that's, that's one of the great things. People, you ever, whenever you finish a project, people are like, well, what are you going to do now? How could you ever make it better? And lo and behold, whatever company it is, they make it better the next time. So if you took carbon out of that equation and said, this is what you got, go deal with it. You know, it may not be carbon, but it may be something that is, you know, mixed with aluminum or something. But I, I can see with the mines in the cycling industry that, Aluminum bikes would be way better than they are now if it weren't for carbon. I mean, we see, I mean, right now we see, and it's a kind of a traditional thing in the in the road industry at, at the very least, and probably in the mountain bike industry too, like, you know, alloy frames, aluminium frames, I should say, because alloy sort of covers a whole multitude of, uh, of materials, of course, but aluminium bikes tend to be cheaper than their carbon, uh, than their sort of carbon. I mean, especially, right? especially on road gravel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a bit. There's a bit more variation when it comes to mountain bikes, I think, because mm. uh, oh, you get you get split frames and so on, don't yeah, you? Yeah, and and I think in mountain bikes, there's still still a big favoritism on riders on riding aluminium because mm. they think yeah. carbon fiber is going to explode or something. But it obviously, it isn't. But yeah. um, but I mean, from from your point of view, is is there an application where you say you're working on a blank sheet of paper, not necessarily road, not necessarily any particular genre of bike, but a single application where you, you would you would turn around to your paymasters that specialise and say, we should make this out of aluminium rather than composites. Is that any any application you could think where that, that would come up today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are. Um, I, I know there are currently because the, we have to think about the customer when it comes to bikes. Um, so we make bikes for riders, <clears throat> not just not just fill, you know, a, a catalog. And so when we look at the rider's needs, we choose the material based on their needs. And it's not always the case where, you know, well we can make more or you know, you know, sell more if we make it out of carbon. If if that customer is, um, if their needs require an aluminum bike, um, then that's what the material will be. I suppose that comes. That also comes down to you know budgetary considerations as well as as well as performance considerations as yeah, well. And yeah. what, what you're looking to get out get out of that frame, right? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I, 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 you know, it it remains to be said that that aluminium still pretty much rules the roost when it comes to comes to componentry. So things yes. you hang off your bike. Yeah. Yes. You know. So you know, there's a, there is a barrier to to upgrading everything to carbon on your bike. Uh, well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just sometimes. I think I think it can be sort of mistaken that say a, a, you know aluminium generally speaking being a slightly cheaper material to buy a bike made out of you yeah. you would you would you may equate that with sort of lesser quality or lesser performance but I don't think when you consider the road bikes that are out there now for example you know your your CAD 13s and and your and your Alleys and you know you you those bikes can offer every bit of the performance that a carbon bike can well, right? definitely yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean I, just, I remember the you know the S works this works LA from a few years ago, you know, dripping with Dura Ace and yeah, beautiful bike. carbon rover wheels. And, you know, I think that created more of a stir um, around these parts than 
than the kind of the equivalent tarmac of the day. So, you know, I think people got a little bit more excited about it, which is kind of an interesting, you know, t- turn of events, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool bike. And I, I do think that, um, that the customer's needs are, uh, and wants are, um, you know, you can use aluminum and get really close to what a pretty good carbon frame is at a certain point in price point and riders wants they will choose the carbon bike because it's carbon and that's that's the way it is i mean we have some great aluminum bikes and they do really well in the market and um people really like to ride them um that person might not ever buy a carbon bike because they like their aluminum bike so much and there's the opposite case too and i guess something like the the la sprint is kind of the crit racers frame and fork of choice isn't it yeah. it really is well there's there's a strength and a reliability to an aluminum frame in that situation right yeah. as well as if should you trash it you know and it, it's it, a crit you, and it's a crit you will you will exactly yeah <laughs> it's, it's maybe cheaper to replace of course but you know you're getting all the performance you need out of that frame right yeah it, it definitely tells your competition i'm here for some war let's go mm. where do you see aluminium going next i mean you know we're, we're starting to see lots and lots of you know new manufacturing processes you know you've got things like moots 3d printing titanium dropouts etc so there's always kind of new ways of of putting together metal bikes as it were do you see is that something that you'd be looking at to you know what can you do with aluminium how can you improve how can you um tweak it or and i guess the, the real question is that if the majority of aluminium bikes out there are effectively price pointed is there a a desire to to make those improvements aside from your own kind of you know engineering investigative mind as it were yeah that's a good question because well everyone's in the industry has investigative you know curious minds that wants to make it better um and at, at specialize we really love making aluminum bikes and we we understand how to do it um, and there always is a, it, there is a desire to make a better one. Um, so part of my job is uh, creating new ways to work with materials. And aluminum is always in the mix. Um, so with, I can't tell you what I'm working on, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> you might see in three, four, or five years. Okay. Well, I look forward to that. Yeah. So do you, do you foresee a time where aluminium i mean we see you know performance bikes be you know generally speaking being made of carbon these days in fact almost exclusively i I would suggest do you do you see a time where aluminium could make some kind of some kind of return some kind of um appearance on say the the, a a pro tour uh team on on a pro tour bike at some point if the the technology has the ability to move forward could that i mean because going hand in hand with every with every sort of engineering and uh, development and trying to move you know, materials forward is, is, is a marketing question as well. Is there an opportunity there, do you think? I think that if you, um, all those things you said, if you wrap them all up, there is an opportunity through marketing and um, real world systems that an aluminum bike could be a better choice for the future. Certainly, certainly, they'd be potentially more recyclable. I suggest a metal bike would be more recyclable and more and, and easier to produce than a carbon bike, potentially less energy intensive. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. 
there's that's such a minefield of um, yeah, yeah. mostly because I don't know the real answers sure. to the, the energy question. So I can only uh, tell you back what I've heard other people say. So I'm not informed enough to make an intelligent comment on that. No worries. No worries. I wouldn't ask you to speculate where, 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 you, where you couldn't necessarily speculate without enough basis in reality. It's fair enough. Warren, do you have any questions? Uh, no, I think I've plowed plenty of uh, long-winded questions into Chris already. <laughs> and, he's, and he's answered superbly to everyone. So Fair enough. I have, uh, obviously, I, I, you know, I'm of, of, of the era where I have a huge affinity to aluminium bikes. Um, and so this was of this series that we've done on frame materials. This is one I was really looking forward to uh, getting some insight from, from one of the, uh, one of the originators of, of quality aluminium in, in a performance way. So yeah, it's been insightful and interesting. So but I think I'm all out of questions now. That's okay. That's okay. I have one final question, Chris, because I, I would love to be in five years' time, maybe less, maybe a little bit more. I would love to be writing about a you know a, a new sort of game changing aluminium bike or you know piece of componentry. Do you think that's you know in the future? Do you think that's that's a reality? Do you think that could happen in the future? Yes. Good. And I think on that we can probably end this podcast because that's such an emphatic answer. And you know, and we should we should all bear in mind as well that Chris works you know mainly in composites in in carbon these days, if I understand correctly, Chris. Which means that you know you're not minded to say aluminium's great just because you work within it. You know, you've sort of your career sort of moved towards carbon naturally. And I suppose to say so, so, so say that with such sort of verve and uh, certainty, I, that gives me hope for sure. Certainly, I want to write about an aluminium. Uh, a new, new aluminium technology in the future, that's for sure. It's definitely more for us to write about and talk about. Oh, most certainly, most certainly. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'm sure we will we will talk again at future launches, future product uh, launches, and we'll meet you and I. We'll meet in person, I hope. And Warren, you will be able to uh, update your relationship with Chris. And Yeah, uh, I'm sure we'll bump into each other again. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, thank you very much for, for joining us. And we, I'm sure we will uh, talk to you again on another podcast episode at some point in the future again. So thank you very much. To, to those of you listening, um, if you've enjoyed this, uh, this podcast on uh, aluminium frame materials, please uh, do give us a, a five-star review and uh, leave us some comments. Um, let us know how we've done. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we will see you next time. Uh, oh, and I shouldn't forget as well, you can email us at podcast at bikeradar.com if, uh, if you would like to leave us any uh, questions that we can answer in a future tech series. Thank you very much. Cheers, Warren. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 